0: friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. It is a special week here on the podcast, and we have got a great show in store for you. This week on the show, I've passed the microphone over to my good friend, Pastor Mike Kelsey. You know him and love him. In addition to being the lead pastor of preaching and culture at McLean Bible Church just outside of Washington, D.C., and a repeat guest on That Sounds Fun, he's also been a repeat host of the show for the last couple of years. Basically, his heart and his work pastoring and leading in multi-ethnic environments makes him the ideal friend for us to continue to learn from about what it looks like to live out racial reconciliation in a ongoing way. So I asked Mike if he would host a week of shows again, as he's so graciously done before, and he graciously agreed. And he has crafted these two shows this week as conversations with friends about the Asian American experience, particularly in regards to racism. And today, Mike talks with his friend, Pastor Mitchell Lee. He's the lead pastor of Grace Community Church, a multi-ethnic church located between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore. These two amazing pastors are going to dive into Mitchell's experience, being in. Asian-American pastor of a predominantly white megachurch, and his journey of racial identity and what dynamics are like between the Black and the Asian communities. I'm telling y'all, I was blown away when I heard this episode, and I know you will be too. So here's the conversation between our host, Pastor Mike Kelsey, and his dear friend, Pastor Mitchell Lee.
1: Mitchell Lee, man. It is uh it's good to be on here with you, bro. How you doing, man?
2: Kelsey, man. Good. The fall started off well, and it's just fun to be on here with you, man.
1: Yeah. Well, let me let me introduce you a bit. I know Annie already set you up and gave, you know, your your real credentials. But the main thing I want people to know is that we're friends and have been friends for a long time. In fact, you and I and two other guys, shout out to Ian and Matt do a i don't even know what we call it at this point but it's a little retreat it's a little getaway that we do once a year and uh yeah I want to tell folks about that man
2: yeah i still remember the first time we did that and um do you remember going into that butcher shop and uh i think you and i were the amazing. only people of you and i were the only people of color probably in a, <laughs> yeah. a 30 mile radius and we were like uh no nah, y'all y'all go in uh, mike <laughs> yeah. and i are gonna go wait in the car right but this boy, was like we west virginia or
1: something yeah yes
2: yeah. and we Those had some, are some good steaks, steaks though
1: so, yeah that
2: was amazing cut on the same saw I think as they cut the uh the daily deer harvest I think is what they were doing bro. so
1: I don't know what a, it was, was but I, I've never had steak like that I know you have because you're a you're a grill connoisseur but <laughs> yeah man it's been a fun ride bro uh we've been through some different seasons together and mm-hmm. uh, I want to. I want to dive into just some questions, man, about your your background, personal experience. And, but for folks who are listening, part of the reason why I'm doing these particular interviews and this one with Mitchell Lee is I've had the opportunity, Mitchell, and you've listened to some of the episodes. I don't know why Annie keeps inviting me uh, to do this, but I've had the <laughs> opportunity to almost be a little bit of a, a tour guide for people just to understand a bit of just the black experience when it comes to race and culture and the intersection of that with faith and the church. But in my own personal journey, one of the big growth curves for me has been learning more about Asian American culture and the Asian American experience here in the United States and the church, you know, Mitchell, that I pastor, our Montgomery County location where my family primarily worships is about 30 plus percent. Asian American, mostly Korean and Chinese. Uh, And so, man, that has been such a blessing and a gift, but it's also pushed me and challenged me. And bro, you've been uh, such a a critical voice in my life as I've navigated and grown in these issues. So I want to dive into some of that. But before I do that, I want to start with the book you wrote. Your first book, man, and I had the opportunity of kind of watching you and praying for you as you were in the writing process. And it's called Even If, and I love this subtitle, Trusting God When Life Disappoints, Overwhelms, or Just Doesn't Make Sense. You could have basically called this book The Pandemic. Like, I mean, I feel like it just, that just taps what so many of us have walked through over the last couple of years. Uh, but I wanted to start there because I think it frames, man, so much of of your story Uh, and it's based on the story of the three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3, and you pulled a principle from that story that forms the basis of your book, and you call it the Even-If Declaration. So talk to us about that, man.
2: Yeah, the Even-If Declaration is a declaration that says we worship God for His goodness, even if His goodness doesn't show up in our lives the way we think it should or the way we wanted it to. So I really try to pastorally walk the line of acknowledging pain, hurt, disappointment, broken dreams, dashed expectations, I want to acknowledge those things, and but at the same time, we don't want to lose the goodness of God, that God is still at work even in the midst of it. And even if Declaration really came out of my own valley, my own time where I really thought my ministry career was over before it even began. And just feeling like, gosh, all this potential that I was always told I had, all of these hopes and dreams, I felt like the train had left the station and I was stranded on the platform. And, you know, it was interesting. I I remember doing an interview about that book around last year, and the interviewer who had read the book noticed, he said, you know, I see how much the immigrant experience is a part of your a part of this book mm. obviously it was a part of my story since I'm the son of immigrants but how much it was a part of the book and I actually had to take a step back for a second because I was like oh yeah it really is you know I had strung a bunch of stories together about my parents about yeah. their journey but I realized that this even if declaration this resolve to worship God and the surrender to worship him even when life didn't go the way you wanted it to I saw that really modeled in my parents and the immigrant generation. Even if they didn't use the words, even if, that that mentality, that spirit to worship God uh, was was there. So it was this confidence in God's goodness and the resolve to worship him no matter what. And that has really been something that has kept me and uh, many of the even-if warriors, I call them, Mm. uh, the people around me who, you know, Walking through cancer, walking through crazy stuff, and they're saying, No, I'm still gonna worship God. Where else would I go? Mm. Right? You would use the words of life, Jesus. And so uh, that's the birth of the book, and that's also kind of how it is a reflection of my own experience as an
1: Asian American. Mm. Bro, so for people who are listening, and I know this isn't the, the core part of the interview, but when you talk about, I mean, you listed some of the things that people might be walking through cancer or relationship challenges questions and concerns and uh deeply painful experiences that i mean just all across the spectrum man people have experienced a variety of different forms of pain suffering here's my question for you man i think as i hear you talk about that even if declaration like even if god doesn't do things the way that i think he should right now i'm gonna worship him i'm gonna trust him how do you get your heart there though because I think people can say or nod with their heads and say, that's true. But how do you actually get your heart to that place when you are you feel like you're in the pit?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there's several ways, uh, one of which is sometimes it's by process of elimination. So what I mean by that is in, right in the, the second part of the book I talk about the counter conditionals that we'll come up with in our life. So instead of saying, even if we'll say only if only if God, you do this, or we will live in the world of uh, regrets and, and hypotheticals. If only God had done this Mm. or the, the contingency plans, the what if God, this happens or that happens. And so some of it's by process of elimination in our hearts as we are reflecting and realizing, Oh gosh, I'm carrying these conditionals in my, in my heart of oh, uh, I've, I've almost locked God in that if he doesn't deliver a spouse to me in my five-year plan, mm. then I'm going to question his goodness. Or I hold on to that, just white-knuckling it so hard because I want that thing to happen. So part of it's a process of elimination, uh, examining what are my counter-ifs, my counter uh, my, counter-ifs, mm. my, my the conditionals, the contingencies, the regrets that we might have. So I talk a lot about that the that's the process of elimination. The moving towards that is a lot of reflection of remembering. We are not a good culture at remembering. We can recall. We're great at recalling. Hmm. But we're not good at remembering. I I would actually say we're even losing the ability to recall, uh, in that, you know, we rely on our social media to tell us, hey, remember eight years ago when this happened hmm. and, you know, those there's, there's memory pictures? And for me the difference between recalling and remembering is recalling might be I recall the time when you and I and Ian and Matt, we, we decided to go out in a frozen lake <laughs> and throw our bodies across to see who could get the farthest Wait, pause. across the These lake. These are I,
1: things that black dudes don't do, by the way. Uh, we, we don't glide across <laughs> frozen lakes Okay that, <laughs> and, But, but Maju, just so everybody understands We're not This is not ice skating Okay This is literally just us <laughs> Running and it's diving body, It's
2: throwing our bodies <laughs> yes. Horizontal across a frozen lake yes. Believing somehow that, that that ice is thick enough to hold yeah. us Right So, And I have the video If anybody needs to see that I have the video proof <laughs> That I that I out through myself uh, That I beat the Honorable Mike Kelsey in that but like even what we just did, so I could recall the events of what we did. But we just remembered. Mm-hmm. We laughed about it. Mm-hmm. We thought about the significance for our friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember our phone, our, our car conversation going up. Where, uh, I mean, that was a significant conversation for me, Mike. When I had the realization: Wait a second, you and I are in very similar kind of white uh, majority spaces as pastors. But when you as a African-American pastor went into that space, it wasn't quite celebrated Mm. by your ethnic community as much as it was like, man, why are you a sellout? Why are you going to another church like Mm -hmm. that? Whereas when I moved into being the lead pastor of a predominantly white church, it was like, oh my gosh, one of ours made it, Mm. It, right? It was like an evangelical Mm insanity happening, right? And I remember that conversation. I was like, wow, what a different experience. And so- the significance of those events is the remembering. Mm. And if we if you want to develop like an even if type resolve declaration in the midst of the valley, I think this is why God tells his people over and over again in the scriptures, remember, remember, mm. remember, remember. remember the significance of who I am and what I've done. Don't just recall it. But remember how I, sh- I poured out my love for you. Remember how I showed up in those places. So you're almost building a portfolio of God's faithfulness. And then at the very end of it, and maybe for some people they're listening, like they're like, man, my life has been filled with so much hardship. I, I, have, a hard- I have a limited data set to remember. Well, that's where the testimony of Scripture has to uphold us because now we're just increasing the data set. And you know we're going all the way back, I mean, to the cross, for sure. But then even beyond the cross to the Old Testament, we're saying, oh, wait, if God was that faithful then, and he showed his goodness there, he will show his goodness to me now. He will not forget me. So those are some, you know, uh, process of elimination, yes, but also just developing the discipline of remembering, especially in our culture today, especially at the pace we're going today, uh, we're not good at remembering.
1: Mm. Man, I think you just pastored some people We weren't even planning on going all the way there, man, but I I think just out of the gate, um, I hope that encourages some people who are really caught in between and struggling um, and grasping for just something to hold on to. And I think that remembering um, is so, so key. And I know that's been such a huge part of your story, man. And so I want to dive in to just your experience. And I know for you, it doesn't just start with you. You are midstream in this river of a heritage, you know, that has been handed down to you from your parents and their parents. And so why don't you tell us a little bit, man, about uh, just your story and your parents' story. You you already mentioned just some of the immigrant story, but even how that interacts with and overlaps with my story is pretty cool, which (laughs) we didn't even really realize until, you know, we started becoming friends and talking more.
0: Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation real quick to share about one of our amazing partners, Thrive Market. Y'all, one of my friends goes to two different grocery stores every week to stay within her grocery budget and get everything she wants and needs that her slightly picky kids, those are her words, will actually eat. Finding high quality, affordable grocery items in one place is almost impossible in today's world. But thanks to Thrive Market, I stress less because I get everything I need and so much more in one place. Shopping with Thrive Market means you'll find everything from healthy pantry. essentials to sustainable meat and seafood to non-toxic cleaning and beauty products. And it's all delivered right to your door. Y'all, we're so lucky to live in the age of deliveries like we do. When you buy from Thrive Market, you can save up to 30% off the best organic groceries. My favorite bone broth, the kettle and fire bone broth that Danielle Walker taught me about, is my go-to for literally every soup that I make. And don't sleep on the Thrive Market brand for pantry staples like flour and salt. Even more savings there and they are so good. I absolutely Love how easy it is to use their website and their app. Whether you're looking for low sugar, keto, gluten free, BIPOC owned brands, Thrive Market makes it simple to filter by 90 plus values and lifestyles to find what works for you. Thrive Market saves me so much time looking for clean cleaning supplies for my house. I'm so thankful. With Thrive Market's fast and free carbon neutral shipping, you're also saving a ton of time otherwise spent in grocery lines and parking lots. Best of all, when you join Thrive Market, you're joining a community of 1 million plus members and sponsoring a family in need, which I love. Get convenient, high-quality, affordable groceries delivered with Thrive Market. Join Thrive Market today and get a free $60 gift, you guys, six zero. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash that sounds fun to get a free $60 gift. That's thrivemarket.com slash that sounds fun. And I want to tell you about another one of our incredible partners, The Chosen. Okay, if you don't know, and believe me, you want to, if you don't know The Chosen is a series based on the Gospels, and it's an incredible visual retelling of the stories of Jesus' life. There are already two seasons available, and I recommend a binge of those immediately because the wait is over, you guys. The Chosen Season 3 begins in theaters November 18th. Uh, Watching Jesus on the big screen, let's go. The theme of Season 3 is from Matthew 11, 28. It says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. This season the most consequential and emotional chapter yet picks up right where season two left off but turns up the heat, you guys. In season three, Jesus delivers the most famous sermon in history and what follows are the consequences of living out his teaching. The honeymoon is over, you guys. Both followers and enemies of Jesus multiply, stirring new troubles, tensions, and tough questions. I imagine some that you and I have wrestled with ourselves. But in the midst of all that upheaval, Jesus brings rest. He gives rest. Episode one and two will begin in theaters starting November 18th and episodes will start releasing for free in the Chosen app before Christmas. For more information, just visit thechosentickets.com. Again, mark your calendars for November 18th and visit thechosentickets.com for all the info. And now back to Mike and Mitchell.
1: But why don't you tell us a little bit about your parents, man?
2: Yes, yeah, so my, my parents uh, immigrated from South Korea in 1974. I was born in 1975. Originally my parents were gonna go to Canada, but they were invited to come to New York City because my dad had a friend there. And then my dad's cousins were down in Maryland, and so they ended up coming down here. So I was born and raised in Maryland. My dad was not a believer. Uh, when I was born and I think it was about age five or six that's usually the kind of the first recollection I have of going to a Korean immigrant church my parents decided to bring us to church so I went to a Korean immigrant church and spent 20 plus years there in that church Uh, meanwhile my dad really my parents really lived the immigrant dream they they climbed the ladder so to speak uh, financially maybe not so much socially but financially in the sense of they were you know, uh, self-employed. Uh, my dad did construction and was pretty pretty successful at it and then left that. My mom comes from a long line of just culinary wizards. And so they opened a, uh, a little deli or they bought a deli donut shop. You'll love this. They bought a deli donut shop right next to a police station. <laughs>
0: Genius. Right. So
2: I, I don't want to feed into Genius. any stereotypes, but... <laughs> bro we never got a ticket we got my mom got pulled over so many times i remember and like and i every i just have so many memories of different police officers going like mrs lee
1: you know and when (laughs) when they walk up the way that's the way to get out is 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 pastrami sandwiches like
2: this pastrami sandwiches and chocolate frosted donuts man right next to the police station And so they did that for twenty plus thirty years. Eventually, sold that one in Bethesda, and then where it intersects with you, is they own this deli right across from the high school that you went to. Where I used that is just crazy. And here's the crazy
1: thing, bro. I used to skip school all the time, and we used to go to that deli, and we used to go to the Wendy's (laughs) over there. And the and so yeah, so that was crazy. So we didn't even realize that man when we first became friends. And the reason why that's so significant is funny, but there is a long history of not even just general like Asian American like business, but Korean American business in the African American Ooh. community. So that that was just an interesting connection, um, and part of why I wanted to talk to you um, in this episode because some of the history between Asian Americans and African Americans in our country, and even some of the current issues, it it hasn't always been nice and cordial. There's been tension in the history of our ethnic community. So why don't you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, we saw the real expressions of that during the LA riots Hmm. in the 80s, right? When uh, the Rodney King stuff went down. But, you know, as I've been trying to study and understand the Asian American experience more, and I, I am not a historian by any means, I'm a pastor trying to help a multi-ethnic congregation made up of Asian Americans, whites, and blacks in one congregation to understand each other and know each other. I remember part of the history that was really fascinating to me and a bit saddening to me was to uh, understand how this idea of the model minority fits in. I mean, even what, what I shared just a few minutes ago, right, about our the different reception we got from our home communities, mm. or not not reception, but the different expressions or... or Communications we got from our home communities, I think, says something, and it and it has to do with, I think, how Black communities have related to white communities, and uh, Asian American communities have related to white communities, and what's the commonality there is the white communities, and if we look in the in the history, you, you go back to, I mean, you can go way earlier than this, but some of the significant moments, you know, the the Chinese Exclusion Act of uh, 1882, where basically for for you know, how how familiar is this sounding? Well, we don't want them taking our jobs. We don't want them coming in and impacting us, bringing their stuff. And so, I mean, an act of Congress to ban all Chinese immigrants uh, from entering the country. It's It's peculiar that if you fast forward, so then, you know, Chinese are seen as the enemy. And then we get to... Uh, A little bit uh, later, we get into the 1940s where, you know, now uh, World War II breaks out and Japan is the enemy. And the Chinese Exclusion Act is repealed in 1943, but that is shortly after the executive order of uh, 9066, which is Japanese internment. Mm. So what I want you to see is like Chinese during the Exclusion Act, Chinese were considered the enemy. But then when Japan became the enemy, Chinese were considered friends like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're come in, come in. Mm. And now J- Japanese, including Japanese-Americans, were interned. The only uh, example I can remember of, in history where a government has uh, imprisoned their own citizens. Mm. But then you get later on when Mao Zedong comes into power and, and the fear of communism. So interesting that Chinese become again the enemy and then Japanese are now on the inside. And what do we see in just that movement is we see this the constant perpetual foreigner. Mm. Uh, Asian-Americans are always, you're always granted provisional status and it's all dependent upon how you relate to white folks, Mm. white communities. Um, Now, why am I talking about perpetual foreigner? Because that's actually what leads into this myth of a model minority Mm. that Asian-Americans, as long as they are in good standing with uh, the white communities, they are accepted. And the minute that they're not, they are rejected or put in the other Mm. the reason that becomes really really problematic is when we get into the civil rights era and again this is a way generalized i mean i'm just doing broad brush strokes here but when we get to the civil rights era it's it's so interesting we begin to see the model minority used as a sort of argument against the civil rights movement Mm. right so look at all these all these uh you know uh you know, back in the 1960s, even in the media, the, look at the Negroes. The Negroes want all of these things. They want reparations. They want all of these concessions. But look, look, look at the look at these uh, Asian Americans. They're doing just great without all mm. that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's almost using that as an ex- and a reasoning of saying, look, maybe, no, it's not something in the system. This is just, you know, the black community, they're just not hardworking. Mm-hmm. They're just not intelligent. They're not... And what's happening is that these two communities are are positioned against each other. Yeah. You know, to to the black community, look, if you could just be like the Asian Americans and work hard, then you would get ahead, right? That, I mean, that what a what a skewed explanation. Mm-hmm. And then Asian Americans, it's like, oh yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, the black communities, they are lazy. They are don't. Now you've got this. Mm-hmm. You've got the the the, the chessboard. Yeah for an increasingly stressful hostile tension that's growing underneath throw on top of that asian americans are giving these opportunities to make business and where do they plant those businesses in black communities um and i remember uh gosh it was probably about 10 years ago i was down in kenwood uh right where 295 comes into uh to dc yeah And I remember walking into a store, I'll use air quotes, a convenience store. Hmm. It looked more like an aquarium. You walk in and all the stuff is behind plexiglass. And the project was that we were supposed to go and find out how much a gallon of milk was. right? Hmm. And so we go in and it's a Korean owner. And, bro, the weird, awkward tension. Like here I am as a Korean American looking at a Korean owner. First of all, the Korean owners like, what the heck are you doing here?
1: because yeah, for those like, that don't know, you know, that's not necessarily uh, or hasn't. So 10 years ago, for sure, you say perpetual foreigners walking around that neighborhood. Yeah.
2: Dude, I mean, I walk in, gallon of milk's $8, right? $8 for a gallon of milk. But I was in this weird space because I didn't know what, I didn't know, wait, am I supposed to be angry at the injustice that a gallon of milk cost eight dollars like i think it was in the washington post around that time somebody put out an article like in dc you've got to be rich to be poor Mm. right Mm -hmm. and it was eight dollars. the injustice of that but then seeing that it was a korean owner who was marking it up like that Mm. bro that was a weird space for me to to look face to face into that tension and that hostility between these two communities
1: man that So that explains so much because, I mean, you know, my dad is a pastor in the heart of the city in D.C. My family's from D.C. Mm -hmm. My dad pastors in the same ward of the city that he grew up in. So this is Northeast D.C., Ward 5, Trinidad neighborhood. And our church is on Florida Avenue. It's in the middle of the block. Um, And on both ends of the block... There were, it was a liquor store on one end and there we called it a corner store, you know, on the other end. And both of those were owned by Koreans. Uh, and I just Ooh. remember growing up, walking down the street, there was always this tense relationship with yeah. the employees there, with the business owners. For sure, there was the plexiglass, um, you know, yes. that that was there. And uh, man, so it's so interesting hearing your experience kind of on the other side of that and so I'm Mm -hmm. curious for you Mm -hmm. so fast forward to 2020 and George Floyd is murdered and he triggers that that murder triggers this like this avalanche of racial unrest it just and it hasn't it hasn't stopped what was it like for you because you explained that moment walking into that store seeing that injustice and this having this weird relationship with that injustice, the way, you know, the way you're processing it. What was it like for you as a Korean American and then a Korean American pastor of a predominantly white megachurch? What was it like for you in the midst of that powder keg that exploded in 2020?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I would actually go back. Part of my answer even goes earlier than that. Mm. And, and, you know, listeners might think, oh, 2016, here it comes. No, no, even earlier than that, in terms of my journey, Starting in in 2004, Mike, the Lord in his goodness and kindness, but also really perplexing to me, had me leave the Korean church and enter into a non-Korean space. Uh, At that time, 2004 was white, uh, all white. I mean, my wife and I were the ethnic diversity of our church. Mm. And I did not want to talk about race. I did not want to be the race guy. Maybe I had it in my mind that it was kind of caricaturized as an angry Asian male. I don't want to be the angry Asian guy. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't want to talk about it. And even though my relationships in terms of a multi ethnicity cross ethnically were growing and and uh, getting so diverse, and I was learning about other people's experiences, I still was a, le- a little bit removed from it. and. The reason I go back that far is because when Barack Obama became president, I look back now and I say, man, I missed that moment to really celebrate Hmm. with, even at that time, just my African-American pastor colleagues who I was in relationship with. like I missed the opportunity to really Hmm. celebrate that. Why? Why did I miss that? Well, because I, again, this is part of using the model minority to my own advantage is I kind of liken it to like, imagine, you know, somebody invites me over to their house for Thanksgiving dinner, right? And it's a family of, of black and white folks. It's just an imaginary family. And they start fighting at the Thanksgiving table. They're just going at it. And they're talking about past history and tradition. And I'm just sitting there like, what the heck is going on? I'm just a guest here, right? Mm. And a strange thing they're fighting and I'm like I'm thinking to myself y'all need to just figure this thing out what is going on but while I'm thinking that Mike I'm eating the food mm. I'm eating the dinner I'm Metro. eating at the dinner table with my mouth full I'm like oh, y'all need to figure this out but I'm just gonna hey can you pass the mashed potatoes mm. there and the you know and, and the the cranberry sauce whether it's canned or you know the, the, <laughs> the real way whichever way it needs to be canned
1: way. but that's a whole nother podcast right?
2: I know, I know. I slipped that in there, right? So, uh, you know, it's just, I'm sitting there eating. I'm benefiting, Mm. actually. I'm benefiting. So when 2020 came and this groundswell of lament and then a groundswell of reaction and resistance to the lament, bro, I found myself so disoriented in the middle of that. Mm. And I realized at that place, you know what? I can't play... The perpetual foreigner card I can't play the model minority card. Mm. What does the Lord really desire here, and what does He want to show us and I mean that was a deep a deeply impactful time for me as a as a pastor because it ripped our church mm. apart um, I mean, you know you have that experience yeah. too it ripped our church apart. people that I thought were further along were not and I found myself really just probably everybody listening, like, what do I do here? What am I supposed to do? And as an Asian American, I thought very foolishly, Mike, I thought, okay, since I'm at the table and here's these blacks and whites fighting, let me try to insert myself and say, can we be a bridge builder? It was interesting how the perpetual foreigner card was used against me. Mm. So yeah, people were so, like, "Oh man. no, you're just assimilated, you're just assimilated, right mm. So if I'm like you're not saying enough, Mitchell, you're just assimilated you're You're just living out the model minority, right, Or if I was trying to call out um, you know our our white folks on things and to understand and to move towards, they'd say, Well, like um, like who are you? You're just woke? We're gonna throw you in the other box too, mm. so you're no longer we're, we're taking away your provisional status." Mm. Right. You're you're as a model minority. You're going over there. But then there was also times where, like, as an Asian American, you're invisible in the sense of I I remember there's one time it it was Mike. It was a a very passionate white gal who was telling me that I just did not understand the plight of people of color in America.
1: Wow. And wow,
2: I, I was like, I was like, wait a second. Are you are you telling me that like, <laughs> bro? bro <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know. What does she see? What does she see? Like, mm. who does she see me as? Mm. what does she? Oh, there it is. There it is. There's mm. the invisibility of being an Asian American that uh, that so many of my Asian American colleagues have talked mm. about that invisibility. I got
1: to experience that front row. Bro, so this is so helpful because so in my own journey, and man, part of why I wanted to do this is I've pushed a lot of people and, and hopefully try to gently, at and sometimes not so gently, guide people to understand the black experience. But I just want people to know that I'm a person also who is in process when it comes to these issues. And so even as I speak up about African-American issues and particularly how that intersects with life in the church as followers of Jesus. Well, I'm in the midst of all that because there are areas where I'm ignorant. There's areas where I have blind spots. There are areas where I'm taking active steps to grow. And so in my own journey, especially as a pastor, man, first of all, I remember this was several years ago. So this is even before like the Atlanta shooting. Uh, this is just me wanting to get to know and learn more and figure out what I'd You know, you don't know what you don't know. And so just trying to figure out what don't I know and what do I need to read on? So I remember approaching an older Chinese man in our congregation. He's an OG, well-respected in our congregation. He also grew up and was a leader kind of in the Chinese American church, but is a part of our church now. And I remember hitting him up and just saying, hey, I'd love to invite Asian Americans in our church family to meet with me. And I just want to ask them some questions. And it was just questions like, what would you want your pastor to know about the Asian American experience in America? Or what would you want us to know about your experience in our church? And I remember him saying to me, if you wanna do that, I'd be willing to help you pull that together. He said, but just a heads up, a lot of us, we wouldn't necessarily want to be singled out in that way. And honestly, I did not understand Mm -hmm. it. Partly, man, because if you say open forum, Black people, we want to invite you to talk about race and share your experience. Listen, bro. We sending group text messages. We're like we're we 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 are it's I think it's part of our heritage, <laughs> the civil rights movement and advocacy and all that. We we're just eager, man, to talk about those issues. So that kinda it just knocked me back a little bit. And so I leaned into that and have been able to learn more about why. But does that resonate, man, with York's, does that surprise you? I guess is my question, that he, that he would respond that way?
2: Yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me because while, you know, black community, Asian, comu- Asian American community, mm. one of the things that we have in common is a collectivist mentality, right? Like we're in this together. It parts ways in terms of how that collectivist mm. mentality is expressed when you start talking about hard things. Potentially shameful things. So uh, here's an example. Mike, do you remember growing up? Did you ever have, can you remember instances where you were shared stories from the previous generation about racism, racist experiences, even instructions that were handed down to you about what kind of racism to expect? Do you, do you remember ever having those Pro kind of South, conversations? And
1: like you said, the The typical conversations about how to move and operate as a black man. um, Absolutely. That was a huge part of my upbringing.
2: So that's one of the beautiful things about like there's I mean, I hate that those conversations have to actually happen. But the the fact that they did happen Mm. demonstrate a sort of collective memory that gets passed down. Asian communities, we don't have that when it comes to hardships that people have experienced, mm. uh, partly because of the honor-shame that's involved. They, we just don't have a lot of those collective stories that our parents tell us, hey, be, be ready when this thing, thing happens. No, we were told, look, you study hard mm. and you achieve, and you'll be able to break every barrier that you face. Uh, we don't have that those collective stories and experiences to draw on one of the things like i'm incredibly grateful yeah. to be living in our time now is because those collective stories are starting to come out now they're starting to be shared but there's very few collective stories of past anti-asian racism right so older relatives friends apparently they don't pass on the significant information so just imagine that if that's the case as any pastor whether it was me or you or a white pastor takes an Asian American segment Mm -hmm. of his congregation and says, come here and I want you to talk about the hardships of your experience. You're going to get a mute because not Mm -hmm. because they're not there, but because the cultural shame value, but then also we're just not used to collectively sharing those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. It's a very awkward space to be in, which actually for Asian Americans contributes a little bit to the confusion when, we do experience racism because hmm. it's wait a second, was that racist or did I do something wrong? Did I not care? You know, like, I mean, I think I told you about this one time. I went to go pick up dinner for my family and I went to a Chinese restaurant and I was just grabbing takeout and there was a little altercation and some hmm. police had to come and it was right by my car. I wasn't involved in it, but it was right by my car. And they're standing there talking through and the police officers helping them navigate this. And I got my stuff in my hand and I, I have to get through them. So I say, oh, excuse me, officer. I had to get to my car. Wow. And he goes, oh, yeah, no worries. No worries. I'm working, too. Wow. So and then I get in my car and I'm driving away and I'm like, wait a second. did?" Delivery guy. Wait, did he just think that I was the, the Chinese food delivery guy? Is that what he just, right? Did he just think that? Wait a second. But then here's what I went. Oh well, yeah, you know, I, I kind of was dressed a little,
1: wow. Like
2: I was I was just dressed real casual. Wow. Like I started to internalize that for myself.
1: See, that's that's the difference. See, I would have been on Instagram Live. I would have been. <laughs> I <would've> been like, <laughs> racism, <laughs> yeah. right? Right?
2: And. No, I mean, I've got great I'm like, you know, he's in a tense situation. Mm. He's not sure. Yeah. And, you know, from the way that I talked with the owner of the store, I, I would probably pick that up about myself too. Mm. I get it. No problem. But then, you know, I turn with my wife and Sarah's like, but do you think he would have said that if you were white mm. or if you were black? If you were, uh, you know, so it could be a stereotype, whatever. But the example, the point of the illustration is that because we don't have a collective mm. memory of this and a, a shared means of storytelling, to share about these things collectively is very difficult, Mm -hmm. and it leads to individual confusion. Was it racist? Was it not? Did I do something? It leads to a lot of internal confusion, and that's where Asian Americans oftentimes find themselves in this whole conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for the next generation of Asian Americans that, you know, whether you call them Gen Z or Millennials, who they don't struggle with that as much. I'm so grateful for that because there's such a needed presence in the church and in our society. Uh, but that feeling of being in between, the in-betweenness yeah. is still very much there.
0: Hey, friends, just interrupting one more time to tell you about another amazing partner, Cabinets to Go. Do people walk into your kitchen and the first word out of their mouth is, wow. I think I've told y'all this before, but my kitchen sometimes serves as more of a hallway than a destination where I spend a lot of time, you know? If your kitchen isn't quite wow-inducing destination yet, then you need to visit cabinets2go.com to request their free custom 3D design and quote for a kitchen makeover that wows for a whole lot less than you think. They say the kitchen is the heart of the home, and according to real estate experts, upgrades to the kitchen are some of the best ways to add the most value and joy to your home. As seen on HGTV's Dream, Home, cabinets2go.com is your one stop renovation destination. They handle design and installation, basically everything. Seriously, they have everything you need for your Wow kitchen to be complete in weeks, not months. We're talking over 200,000 cabinets available and ready to ship you guys. Well, I don't think before and after photos are particularly helpful related to our bodies and weight and stuff. <laughs> with home renovations, and especially with cabinets to go, before and after are the most fun. I think I'm having as much fun dreaming about my kitchen as I did when I was dreaming up my porch reno during 2020. Visit cabinets to go.com today and see why no one beats their prices or their transferable limited lifetime warranty. Right now, get a full custom 3D design of your new kitchen at cabinets to slash that sounds fun. That's a free custom 3d design of your new wow kitchen at cabinets to go.com slash that sounds fun and remember the show notes are your one-stop shop for links to our partners to transcripts of our shows and to sign up for the afd week and review our weekly email newsletter and now back to finish up this conversation between mike and mitchell everybody
1: listening right now is listening to me like learn in real time and it's just so helpful, man. And as you're talking, I'm thinking of experiences I've had and even the example I gave you talking to the older gentleman in our congregation, my ignorance was peaking in that situation because I just assumed, oh yeah, he'd be so thankful you know that I'll be willing to have that conversation and he'll invite everybody and to be honest with you, I was a little frustrated, to, if I'm honest, um, because I'm thinking, "Hey, man, here I am. I'm giving my time. I'm giving an opportunity, and for that to kind of—I mean, he didn't reject it, but it was kind of a low-key rejection, you know, like, eh." So, but understanding the cultural context behind his response—that is such a essential part of it—is for was for survival. And part of it was just identity formation. That is such a huge part of the African-American experience, that passing down that collective memory. And even if, you know, like some of the men in my family wouldn't necessarily talk about some of the painful parts of their past. But, you know, but my grandmother would tell us, you mm-hmm. know, uh, mm-hmm. my grandfather never told me and he's passed away many years ago now. But he he never told me this. But my grandmother was the one that told me that when he was A teenager he personally witnessed a lynching
2: you know Um, Mm. he
1: never talked about it ever Mm. uh, you know talked about it but still some way somehow that collective memory you know gets passed down so as you have because there's been a surge and you mentioned this it seems like there's been a surge in Asian American voices that are are speaking up and speaking out and advocating on behalf of Asian Americans And so even going back to, you know, the older guy that I was talking to, I wonder, is some of that generational? You know, like when you talk about how Mm -hmm. uh, Asian Americans don't necessarily pass down that collective memory, is there a generational difference in the ways you see Asian Americans engaging in these issues?
2: I think so, because also there's a current in here. And again, I'm not a sociologist uh, nor a cultural anthropologist. So I'm sure there's people who could voice this much better. But whether it's a good thing or not, there is an assimilation that's happening. So when my parents came over, they were far far more Korean than I am. Mm. And I am far more Korean than my kids are by culture. Mm. And as the the kind of Western or maybe individualist, that sort of zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, uh, affects each generation, we're going to see more voices because they're gonna be speaking out because there's a that's a really beautiful thing Mm -hmm. about the the kind of Americanization of of Asian Americans. That's a really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm sometimes I like scratch my head like what age am I living in? I mean like you got like BTS being Mm. like entertainer of the year. (laughs) You got like oh gosh what's the Korean movie that one Best Picture oh gosh uh, the one where they're living in the basement what is that mm. um, oh my gosh I can't remember the name A- anyway I'm just you're just seeing it all over media you're seeing mm-hmm. K-pop K-dramas I go on Netflix and I'm seeing all these Korean dramas and then I'm wa- looking at my kids the books they're bringing home from their school that they're reading all these Asian American authors I'm like bro I never have seen that before I'm like what age am I living in it it's mm. It's really a, a beautiful thing too. So I'm seeing just the kind of empowerment of these voices, and I, I just, I'm really grateful for that. Mm. You know, I'm I'm really grateful for that. That that we're not just in between, and we're not just on the wall. We're not just kind of in the background. Yeah, I'm excited to see the impact that that will have on the church too, uh, yeah. because I think, Asian American culture you know one of the one of the pillars of this thing is like honor shame right and it's just really that's really out of asian culture too and i've i've given some thought about you know largely in the conversation of race in our in our churches we do it based on the the, the parameters of guilt and innocence mm. uh, and we talk about racism in terms of guilt and innocence and, and that's what makes people get really frozen is cuz they're like well i didn't do it i'm i'm innocent i'm not i'm not a racist at all What would happen to the conversation if we began to talk about it in terms of honor, shame, Hmm. where it's not a matter of uh, I can talk to someone and say, my brother experienced this sort of shame, shaming of him based on the color of his skin. Oh, you know, and then I'm sharing that with somebody else. Would it make them more prone to say, oh, gosh, well, how do we give honor to him? Hmm. Versus receiving that kind of information, if, if through a guilt and innocence, lens of saying, well, I'm, I, I'm innocent of it. I didn't do anything. Mm. I, I just think there could be some really important steps. Maybe we could change the conversation a bit by shaping it with an honor-shame mm. parameter. Uh, another way to read it is, if you read the scriptures, if you read it only through a guilt and innocence, like forensic justification, Christ died on the cross, atonement— if you read it through just guilt and innocence, you miss a huge part of this beautiful picture of the gospel that is from honor and shame. And if you don't believe me, just start reading the Psalms. Mm. Uh, look at the writings of Paul through an honor-shame lens. I mean, the book of Romans, right, where like he's the lifter of our head. He removes mm. our shame. He takes the shame of the cross um, that we might have honor as adopted children. Like there, This is just running through, and I think Asian Americans could really help embody
1: that in church life. Mm. Uh, Man, I, so I put out on Instagram, so you talk about church life. I put out on Instagram, hey, I'm doing these interviews. What questions would you want me to ask? And so I want to ask you a couple just rapid fire questions um, that I got because all of them related to Asian American experience in the church, Asian American mm. Christians who are in the church. And so what, what are some of the obstacles or challenges that you have faced as an Asian American leader in the church, and how did you overcome them?
2: Mm, Man, Uh, some of the obstacles challenges I've faced. Um, So I sit in the lead pastor chair at my church, but it's amazing how I still have very much a minority complex.
1: Mm, How so?
2: You know, it's almost akin, since we're in baseball season, I can use that as an illustration. Like, I feel like a minor league pitcher being called up to the major leagues. Mm -hmm. Man, is my stuff going to work here? Is my curveball going to be good enough? Is my fastball fast enough? I think actually a lot of Asian American leaders in the church, they, and and, and by in a multi-ethnic church that's white majority, they wonder... Oh, well, you know, this is how we did it in the Korean church. But then there's almost this built-in, like, the Korean church is less than. Mm. The Asian immigrant church is somehow less than this, you know, uh, white majority church that the building's really nice and all Mm. of things seem to be all in order. And it's easy. It's easy to discount your own contribution and the beauty of your own church culture ethnically Mm. And to just leave that all at the door. So that was a big challenge. I don't know if I've completely overcome that, but I've I've uh, begun to find new expressions of, of Korean culture, but then also mm. Korean church culture that I'm like, oh, my church actually needs this.
1: Is there is there an example? Like, give me one thing mm. that you would say you might desire to import that from the Korean church experience into your current church setting, but you're like, oh, I don't know if that'll be compatible with the environment that I'm in now.
2: Oh, um, well, I can tell you things that I brought in. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not as concerned as much as the compatibility anymore because <laughs> okay. I'm like, yeah, we're a multi-ethnic see. church. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you live with it. What, uh, I say like, you know, what does it mean to be a multi-ethnic church? It's the commitment that everybody's going to be uncomfortable mm. at some point. So, you know, one is this, the concept. Uh, there's been actually recently a lot of things written about it, which I'm glad, but it's the concept of nunchi in mm. Korean nunchi and it literally is this kind of idea of like eye matching and it's the ability to read the room mm. you know today's business theory would call that as like emotional intelligence or relational mm. intelligence bro that was a Korean cultural thing way way before somebody put a term on that mm. and it's the idea to like okay when I'm in a room I'm reading and how are people doing in here especially if I'm not in the first chair what does the first chair person want from me like and so there's a very like a you know if you've got nunchi you're able to read the room and manage the anxiousness that can happen in a room now the mm-hmm. underside of that there's an underside to everything the underside is that you never really show up you just kind of say and do the things that you think are going to be approved of and mm-hmm. you know you're just living out of your false self but man there's times where I'll take some of my staff and say man you know what you need I mean some of my white staff right Like, you know what you need What? What? you need nunchi yeah. Like, what's nunchi?
1: You need to create some nunchi like, swag. We need some sweatshirts. Yes. Oh, we need some
2: Oh, <laughs> dude. Yes, yes. You could do. Oh my gosh, totally. Because, um, man, it, if some of my staff had that, it would make them a hundred percent more effective in meetings and mm-hmm. collaboration. Because mm-hmm. they're not just coming in. With their individualistic, just let's. I'm just gonna throw and say what I'm gonna say.
1: Mm.
2: They're reading the room. Man, I wish that more mm. people had some of that you Nunchi. Know? So
1: it's is that is is like this awareness of like how the whole is being affected,
2: how the whole is being affected, how the leader mm. is being affected, what is appropriate, mm. uh, what's the compromise. Again, there's an underbelly to that. That if you think about it, mm-hmm. yeah, it could be like you're yeah. fake the whole time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But this idea of, yeah, the collective, the community, that's Mm. important. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm. That's great, man. Almost last question. Uh, What are some mistakes you made or that you see other pastors make? Because we may have some pastors listening. What are some mistakes you made or that you see other pastors make in trying to lead through these issues?
2: Uh, We get, you know, our mutual friend, Brian Loritz, you know, always says, like, don't let people's immaturity hijack you. Right. And so the biggest, some of the b- biggest mistakes I've made is I lose myself in the complexity, the high emotion, the anxiousness of this, like my values, my convictions, who I am. It's so easy to lose that sense and just get angry at a person or, you mm. know, frustrated. Like, why aren't they further along? Or how could they not see what I see? And I remember, like, as a, a calling as a shepherd or as a leader, this is not in any sort of condescending way, but we are to bring people to full maturity, hmm. which <laughs> implies that people are not at full maturity. And, and whose burden is that on in terms of like, as the leader, I have to be able to hold that space
0: hmm.
2: for somebody's immaturity. Versus allowing somebody's unhealth or their immaturity to somehow compromise my own sense of, sense of who I am and my convictions. So that's a mistake. Trying to go too fast, right? Like, let's, gosh, let's address this thing. Let's nail this thing head on and let's deal with... Oh, I don't know. Let's deal with 400 years of our racist history in a 4-week series and invite some people of color to come and talk about it. Like mm. way, 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 way too fast. You know, going we got to go slower. We've got to go slower. Mm. And I know some people who are much more passionate would say, "Yeah, that's the excuse that's been through most of, you know, this the history." And it's really interesting. If you look at the civil rights movement, there were actually two currents within the civil rights movement. One was Mm -hmm. this sort of nonviolent resistance. And then the other was like, no, we got to go. And we got to take it by, by, by Mm -hmm. force. But actually a third scene kind of came in there, which was this, um, well, let's just wait for education and everything will kind of get better. You know, that's what, you know, MLK railed Mm -hmm. against Mm -hmm. in his letters from a Birmingham Mm -hmm. jail. Mm -hmm. And... I'm definitely not advocating for that third. Um, I don't think I'm advocating for the second either, nor the first. I'm saying we just got to go slow and be deliberate. This stuff mm. takes time, and yeah, we just we want to have the patience and compassion of God as we speak about mm. hard things. Yeah, that's th- I, I went too fast mm. at times, and that was a,
1: that was a big mm. mistake. That's about. huge, man. Yeah, me too, man. And I think balancing that passion. Uh, that devotion, the the fierce urgency of now, with what Scripture calls us to, and particularly as pastors, to careful instruction with great patience, as Paul yes. put it. That's so difficult, man. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, man. Uh, opening up your life and your story and sharing in some in some vulnerable and personal ways. Mm-hmm. I, I want to wrap us up, but the podcast is called That Sounds Fun. So I got to ask you, man, what What do you do for fun these days? What sounds fun to you?
2: Oh, man, um, you know, at the beginning of Aug I mean, the end of, no, beginning of August, I just went on a 45-mile backcountry hike with my son as sort of a rite of passage for him to go into high school, man. And we went, mm. spent five days, four nights in the backcountry wilderness of Wyoming Climbed to 10,800 feet, caught an 18-inch golden trout, and uh, it's a fish of a lifetime. But you know what's better than catching the fish of a lifetime is watching your son catch the fish oh, of man. a lifetime right after you, man. And mm. so I do that for fun. I love getting outdoors. You know, you and I, I like to be the, my. you know, one of my claim to fame is that I was one of the first guys to take Mike Kelsey out onto a river with waders on. First time.
1: It's the first time ever, uh,
2: we need to do that again. We'll do that again <laughs> so, hopefully we, next September because I got an idea for us to have some gosh. fun and some adventure <laughs> next September. I'm going on sabbatical next year, right? Next summer, and uh, mm. I got some, uh, I got a grant for us, and so for the four of us to go and do a little mm. um post sabbatical. You guys are supposed to help me debrief and process, mm. but you know, there's going to be a lot of uh meat and fishing involved. So we're
1: going to we listen. I'm some on it, that. bro. Let's do it, man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mitchell, thanks so much, man. Uh, thank you for writing the book. Even if it's just been a personal encouragement to me, even though we talked about so many of the concepts before it was in print. But man, thank you for being a friend in this journey and for the ways that you've allowed me to just learn from you and um and uh and, and learn so much from you even today man so cool. appreciate you being on bro uh,
2: thanks man uh, bro if it wasn't for our friendship i don't know if i would have survived this pandemic mm. our um mm. what did we call them at the time our bourbon and bonfires or something like if we didn't have that time <laughs> yeah. i'm not sure if we're supposed to be allowed to say that but uh, uh if we didn't have those times watch. man you know it's just uh yeah. it's been great bro thanks
0: Oh, you guys, aren't they brilliant? I mean, I I just learned. Here is the dream of these episodes is I learned so much I would have never learned when I listened to the two of them compare, contrast, and express their experiences. It is uh, beautiful and such a gift. My gosh, such a gift. I am so thankful for Mike Kelsey and today for Mitchell Lee. I just... Two of my new favorite pastors, well, y'all know Mike's been a long time favorite pastor, but Mitchell is climbing up there. Y'all be sure to grab a copy of Mitchell's book, Even If. Follow Mike and Mitchell on social media. Tell them thanks for being on the show. If you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me. And I think that's it for me today, friends. Go out or stay home and do something that sounds fun to you. I will do the same. Today, what sounds fun to me is telling you about tomorrow. You guys, we have got a ridiculously fun episode dropping tomorrow. I cannot wait for you to hear this one. Do I cry from joy? Yes, yes, yes. You'll have to listen to find out. But yes, I did. I cannot hide when joy drips out of my eyeballs. Y'all have to listen Mara, to find out why. So make sure you're subscribed. Don't miss our special Friday episode of That Sounds Fun. See y'all tomorrow.